0: Well good morning everyone. Uh, You're not seeing things, uh, you're not uh, imagining that I'm in one place when I'm in another. Uh, Our sermon this morning is pre-recorded and I'm encouraging us all to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33 today in this very important and key passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33 Within the space of just two pages in the Times newspaper on Saturday the 4th of July were two book reviews. One focused on the historic abdication of King Edward VIII from the British throne in order to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. For those of you who are that little bit older, you will recall the national crisis that this created. And for those of us who are younger, well, go and ask someone older about what happened and why it was such a scandal in its day that resulted in our current queen's father unexpectedly becoming the king just as the second world war was about to commence. It was a fascinating period of time. The author of this book called The Crown in Crisis summarizes the former King Edward's life like this. He was a wretched ruler, an obsessed and demanding lover. And bar the odd instance of compassion and decency, a selfish and thoughtless man. The other book that was reviewed is entitled The Art of Her Deal. And it's the biography of Melania Trump, the Donald's wife. And the question is asked, well, what is her deal with the president? As she herself acknowledged some years ago when asked whether she would be with Trump if he were not rich... She replied, if I weren't beautiful, do you think he would be with me? The author comments, this is a transaction as much as a marriage. But whether you're watching Loose Women or This Morning on ITV or one of the soaps or have been through marriage classes before your own wedding, have had a happy marriage or an experienced a broken marriage or in a rocky marriage Or maybe you'd love to be married. Everyone has an opinion on this most intimate and God-given gift. All of us have been shaped by our experiences and culture when it comes to marriage. And that is what makes Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33 so important and so radical. And yet unavoidably and inescapably in Paul's writings, here is a section on husbands and wives, how Christian marriages are to function and flourish as a practical outworking of the wonderful gifts of grace that are ours in Christ. I have no doubt that some of us may disagree with what I'm saying today. And that is your prerogative. But so long as you disagree with me from a biblical perspective and not just out of our own selfish ambitions. Some of you will think I have gone too far today and others will think I've not gone far enough. But all I can humbly ask is that God would speak to us through his word and that by his Holy Spirit, so his voice is heard above our feelings and the baggage that all of us bring to this. And the culture that has sought to squeeze us into its mold rather than the image of God. So I think it's important today that we pray before we go on. Let's turn to God as we pray. Father in heaven, you're the creator. You've made us male and female in your image and likeness. And you've given marriage as the basis for stability and security in human society. We value this as it is clear you value us. And as we come to consider this most fundamental relationship for humanity, may we consider it all in the light of your glory. For you withhold nothing that is good for us. And what you give is always for our good. And so as we consider your truth in these words, speak to us, O God. And may all our concerns and queries, answers and anxieties, be found to have an answer, a hope, and a purpose in this your word, and your purposeful plan. We pray this with open ears and soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning in the weeks that are to follow, you couldn't read a much more gritty passage. A passage that is so revolutionary that if Christians really started living it out would transform our society and how people view us And the Jesus that we serve. This passage starts at home. It takes us into the kitchen and the living room. It takes us into our driving and our cars together, our conversation between husbands and wives, parents and children, even into our workplaces, employers and employees. But please bear in mind over these weeks, there is a key verse that acts as a headline over the whole lot Ephesians 5, verse 21 it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do we do with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we internalize it and how does it change the relationship that we're in? This morning we need to ask ourselves in regard to these same relationships, is the risen Lord Jesus the master of our everything? There are just two main points that I want to leave us to consider, and they're fairly fluid. They they interact today as we study this passage together. And the first is this it is practical as we work out submission and sacrifice. In this passage, we read something startling about marriage, something that lifts marriage to an incomparable place in terms of human relationships. Paul describes marriage as a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's to be a a living drama lived out amongst real people in this real world, and it's to reflect how Christ and the church relate to one another. Verse 23 the husband, the head, even as Christ is head of the church. Verse 24 as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Now, I know that not everyone listening today is married. Some of us are single. Some are divorced or separated or bereaved. Some of us are recently married, and others are anticipating marriage. And maybe hearing these words can be confusing or hard to take in as it would be easy to say that this has nothing to do with you, that this sermon is irrelevant to you. But please remember that this letter was read to the whole Ephesian church as they met together. Everyone there was listening in, and yet not everyone there would have been married. Not all of them would have been slaves or masters. Not all of them would have been children, as it were, to parents who were in that gathered congregation. But these words speak to all of us what Paul is urging us to do is to be in prayer and support for Christian marriages in this first instance. For what is seen in a Christian marriage is God's chosen example for the world of what Jesus' sacrifice for sin and his submission to the Father look like. So if you are a lady looking for a Christian husband... Or a man seeking marriage to a Christian lady, these are foundational truths that cannot be overlooked in the misty eyed heat of romance. I would encourage you to reread Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 and see how once God sets his love upon his people, that bond is unbreakable and it's non negotiable. It is a permanent, settled love that cannot be broken. Men, let's face it, we are such fickle beings. We can let our minds go wandering rather than have that fixed and determined committed radical affection that focuses our attention on the bride that we married two or 12 or 42 years ago. How many marriage difficulties occur because a husband is too lazy to pursue, to woo, to encourage, to nurture, to take time with his wife, to treat her as the apple of his eye, too distracted by other things, too tired to try. Too many of our Christian men are like Christian teenagers, still living out their fanciful boyhood dreams of computer games and building projects and cars or sport in their 20s, right the way through to their 60s and 70s. Men who have failed to grow up, Peter Pan, all flighty, aging but no maturity, who have shown little to no spiritual leadership in the family home, more interested in fences and lawnmowers than wives and family, leaving spiritual leadership to a whim, to chance. Christian husbands and potential husbands, let me ask us today, are we prepared for this long-haul, Christ-reflecting commitment, forgiving past faults, pursuing future happiness, nurturing a positive, wholesome, and happy environment at home? There's nothing more moving than talking to a husband who's just lost his wife and as he stood beside her even at her deathbed and those vows that were shared those many years ago till death us do part are proven in the covenant commitment not just in the eros romantic love but through medical problems, family disappointments and life's discouragements. There is to be nothing Of the abdicated King Edward in these verses, who was only into marriage from what he could get from it. Remember how he was described? He was a wretched ruler, an obsessed and demanding lover, and bar the odd instance of compassion and decency, he was a selfish and thoughtless man. We are not to be demanding. Husbands, we are to be selfless and thoughtful. We must not abdicate our God-given responsibilities just because we don't feel in love anymore or because our hearts have been taken up with someone or something else. Our marriages are to be a forsaking of all other things. Just as Jesus Christ left his right for glory behind and went to the cross for us the headship that's spoken about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, does not mean superiority, but rather it's a heavy responsibility to give of ourselves as servant leaders in the home with authority, but without tyranny. Husbands, we are to be always assessing and reassessing our lives, our work patterns, our family life, our relationship with our wives, and determining, am I leading well? Spiritually, am I a blessing or a burden to my wife? Am I a help or a hindrance to my wife? Husbands, we need to look up and see Christ at the cross, our Savior and the people for whom He loved. And if we're to be known as anything, we're to be known as sacrificial. In our communities, it must be said of us as other look on, He would have done anything. For her. Is that what's said of you? He would have done anything for her. But what can be said of husbands can also be reflected for the wives described in Paul's letter. Because theirs too must be a radical affection. Look at verse 22. Wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. The radical nature of a verse like this is that it is entirely countercultural. But you know, there's nothing cupcakes and aprons about a verse like this. Nor does Paul define the work of a wife in terms of a checklist of chores or being chained to a sink. I was deeply troubled to read during the week of a book by James and Phyllis Alsdorf, which presents in horrifying detail a distorted interpretation of Paul's statements has become. Studies in the United States suggest that around 18% of Christian wives have reported abuse of some sort, mental, physical, verbal, spiritual, and that men who hold the traditional values of marriage are more likely to abuse their wives. And such a misuse of Ephesians chapter 5 is an absolute scandal and must be called out. So when we read of wives submitting to their husbands, we need to be aware that the context is within an environment where husbands are to have been self-sacrificial to their wives. At the same time, we must remember that wives created equal by God to reflect his image in those wonderful opening chapters of Genesis. We are made male and female, husband and wife, of the same stuff but different. And it's all in the context of creation, where we've just read in Genesis chapter 1 that there was night and day, sun and moon, sea and land. We were created with different parts to play. If the sun wants to be the moon, there's chaos in the cosmos. If the sea overtakes dry land and stretches beyond its limits, there's disaster. And so marriage was created by God, male and female, husband and wife, and intended to work in his way, in the order that he laid down for the good of all of society throughout all ages. And that is where we must be careful not to tamper with the order that God has given. For when you begin to unpick even one aspect of creation, such as marriage and responsibilities between husbands and wives, then it will not be long before we make marriage into whatever we want marriage to mean. In other words, we will all begin to redefine marriage for ourselves. And isn't that where our society has brought us in these recent years? Redefining marriage for ourselves. So as a man who loves another man, well, can I not marry him? Or if I have one wife, but I have another woman that I love, well, can I not marry her as well? By bringing us back to creation order in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, do you see it there? We're reminded how things are meant to be. Ephesians 5 and verse 31 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We're reminded what a wedding, a marriage, leads to. The biblical view of marriage is that it's God given, it's voluntary. It's a sexual, permanent, and public union of one man to one woman for the purpose of serving God. The Bible is clear. God has called us into submission and sacrifice as wives and husbands. If there's a woman who is going out with someone and you cannot in good conscience be prepared to be spiritually led by your future husband, then the Bible says, do not marry that man. He's not for you. Because, remember, marriage is voluntary. Or if, as a man who's going out or about to be engaged, and you cannot say that you're prepared to give your life for the good of this lady sacrificially, then she's not for you. Because marriage is voluntary. You choose to go into it. No one is forcing anyone to be married. And don't be pressured into marriage because it is better not to be married than married to someone who lacks those determined gifts of submission our sacrifice. Whilst we also hold up Galatians chapter three and verse twenty eight as another important text to consider. Why not read it yourself? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ. You see, in the Church of Jesus Christ, barriers come crashing down. There is a unity despite our social, racial. Or gender. And that is why we have to keep coming back to Ephesus. The fact that Jews and Gentiles were meeting together would have caused a huge fuss in both communities. Like, why are you bothering to spend time with him? He's a Gentile. Or her, she's a Jew. What has possessed you to spend time with them? They're the wrong sort. Or when it comes to slaves and masters, there would have been this societal snobbery of why are you spending your free time meeting in the same house and inviting your slaves to join you? Have you lost it? Do you not know your standing? The same could be said with women now meeting with men in this crazy new thing called church. This gathering of misfits was topped off by people of both sexes eating together, singing together, showing respect for one another. The church led by Jesus in the Gospels gave women the respect that they deserved. You see, up until this point in history, women were unable to give evidence in a court of law. They weren't to be trusted. Their words were seen as frivolous. The Romans and Greeks regarded women as slaves to be used and abused around the family home. So how incredible it was that Jesus gave the status to women who were the very first witnesses of his resurrection. The first missionaries, the first sharers and com- of the complete and full salvation were the Marys who went early on that first day of the week to the garden and announced to the disciples that Jesus was alive. And so into this Ephesian gathering, as the community roundabout looked in, Paul gives these instructions. While the lazy- ladies had been given more freedom than ever before, the way they lived and loved their husbands and spoke and shared with them was to be one of the utmost dignity and respect. They were to serve them just as they would serve Christ. Nothing was to be too much for them to do for their husbands. I think Titus chapter 2 verse 5 is very instructive and helpful in this background too. Helps it summarize it well. We read there, be self-controlled and pure. This is written to the ladies in the church. Be busy at home. Be kind and subject to your husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. How Christian wives serve their husbands is to be in such a way that they selflessly give of themselves so that no one in the outside community can malign them saying, hey, that Christian faith is just an excuse for disorder and selfishness. We can only live out. Ephesians 1 to 3, if we have been filled to the fullness of God, where we're met by his astounding grace. And that humbles us. So here's the question that I leave with us today. How has Christ seen husbands in your Christ-like headship and sacrificial leading? How has Christ seen wives in your Christ-like submission and service? Sacrifice and submission, words that none of us rush to because of our sinful nature and our own selfishness, but words that we cannot do without. For if Jesus Christ had not been our sacrifice, we would be eternally lost, and if Christ had not been submissive to his Father's will, we once again would be left without a Savior. This text is not intended to grant husbands a position of privilege or to teach them that women are inferior. Far from it. Its intent is to avoid offense to outsiders by encouraging our radical mutual love, submission, and self-giving, all determined and controlled by Christ's self-giving love towards us. Remember back in Genesis 2, verse 18, when God creates Eve out of Adam, we read, the Lord said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And in a careful study of the scripture there, it is established that the context suggests that the problem of man's aloneness is not that he's lonely, but rather that there is a task too great in this world to be achieved. The man needs not so much a companion or a lover, although the woman will be both, but a helper to work alongside him. And to acknowledge this transforms the study of marriage from consideration of what pleases us or what we enjoy into a focus upon the serving the purposes of God. This is the practical side of this beautiful passage. But if we're still struggling, struggling as someone who's not married to see the whole point of what's being said or struggling to live this out in our own circumstances, well, from the practical, let me leave with you the pictorial. The pictorial. Let me leave with you a picture of the greatest mystery across all of human history. This is our second and our closing point. A picture of the greatest mystery across all of human history. You see, none of us can make light of our marriages when we read Ephesians 5. For marriage has been chosen by God to be the lived out picture of what Christ has done for his church. Our marriages are to be adverts to our community as to who Christ is and what he has done for us. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the same picture is painted. Israel, God's chosen people are described as God's marriage partner. The whole prophecy of Hosea is given over to this in a lived-out drama as the faithful Hosea is called upon to marry an unfaithful wife called Gomer who gives herself to many men, much to the heartache of Hosea. The picture of the righteous God and a restless people. And also in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 14, it also supplies for us the best example do take time to turn that up later. It's there that we have God who brings to birth for himself a people. And he cares for that people. He washes that people. He marries that people. And he adorns her, his people, Israel, with splendor. All because of his gentle, loving commitment that he set upon her. He only has eyes and wealth set apart for her. But there we read that she rebels. She begins to get proud about the beauty. She believes that her jewelry and her looks and her riches and her finery are all self-made and for her to squander and do what she likes with them. And so Israel gives herself to other gods. The Lord's beloved one loves everyone but him. But our God does not give up on his people. And so we read on behalf of his church here in Ephesians 5 verse 25 that he loved the church and gave himself up for her. The importance of Christ's love in Paul's thinking cannot be overemphasized. It's at least the fourth time in Ephesians he's mentioned it. And we're less stunned by the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for his bride And we read in these verses that his plan for his bride is to make her holy, cleansing her, presenting her in eternity as spotless, without stain or wrinkle, without blemish, holy, blameless. That's what verse 27 is all about. That is God's great plan for his church. Oh, what goosebumps that gives me. What joy fills my heart when I read that that his love is settled upon us, his people, his restless, flirtatious, unfaltering bride. You see, Christ went to the cross as a willing victim. His action was a supreme demonstration of his love for his people, the depths that he went to to redeem her. How Jesus was spat upon and humiliated and kneeled and died all for his love. His beloved one, his bride. Christ showed no limits. He gave himself for us. And he loves and he cares. And in verse 29, we read that he continues to do this work on his church. He feeds, he cares, he irons out the creases, he rubs out the stains. You know, it was said that when Michelangelo was asked how he carved the magnificent statue of David, his reply was reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. Whether it's because I'm called David or not, that touches my heart. And that's what Christian marriage is to be like. That's the vision for this God-given relationship is to reflect Christ and his bride. It's in marriage that we have one of the greatest discipleship networks of all time where God chisels away at each of us. It's to look at our husbands or wives and say, I see what God can do in your life and I want to be part of it. I want to partner with you on the journey that leads us to God and his throne. And when we get there, I will be able to look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you would be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. But now look at you. How wonderful that will be. Each spouse should look at the other and prayerfully, submissively, sacrificially give our all to help the other to see the great thing that Jesus can do in our lives through the gospel. So let us give ourselves over to God. And may we never be used as a means for the good of the other. May we forever be used one for the other. That is what marriage is for. That is what Christ's sacrifice was for, to bring us to glory. He loves us, and just as a husband loves his wife, one in flesh, physically, joined sexually, emotionally, mentally, in the most intimate terms, sharing the same name, living under the same roof as his bride are one with him, We read in verse 30, we are members of one body, his body. Do you see the unity again? The loving solidarity, the inescapable eternal solidity. That's the mystery of verse 32, isn't it? This is the profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. For husband and wife, read Christ and his church. And remember, he is the perfect husband. The humblest servant, but at the same time the most loving leader. This is what you might call this body theology of our unity with him. It's powerful. It is one of God's greatest revealed mystery. And it's the place from which all our Christian lives are to be worked out. Our church life, home life, married life, work life, social life. If we are the bride of Christ... If Christ is our bridegroom who gave his life for us at one with him in the body of Christ as believers sharing the same name one day sharing the same home this is the basis of all our ethics how we live in this world no longer are we to act on our own whoever we are wherever we go whatever we say we do it as part of the body of Christ we do it all for him in him with him unto him, and that includes most especially our marriages. In other words, whether it be within our marriages or any other close intimate working relationship, as Tim and Kathy Keller put it in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, only if my emotional tank is filled with love from God will I be able to be patient, faithful, tender, and open when things are not going well in life or the relationship. And the more joy I get from my relationship with Christ, the more I can share that joy with my wife, my husband, my family. Billy Graham, the American evangelist, was married to his wife, Ruth, for 60 years. He was often on the road and away from home for months at a time, and when he arrived home was often tired and weary. Ruth Graham was once asked if she ever thought of divorcing Billy And with a sense of humor that typified her, she replied, I've never considered divorce. Murder, yes, but not divorce. She was joking, of course. But our God has set his love upon us. As sinners, we deserve to be cut off, murdered, judged for our sin, yes. But he took it all upon himself at the cross. He loved us. And gave himself up for us, so we might neither be divorced, or distance, or die without his love. This is our passionately committed God, who has made us one with himself. Unlike the Trumps, dear Donald and Melania, we are married to our Saviour, not because we are rich. Or beautiful, but rather in His grace-filled love towards us, He took us, those who were spiritually ugly and spiritually bankrupt, and lifted us, and He's begun to make us beautiful and rich in the heavenly places. That's why, in all our thinking, we must start with the grace of Ephesians one to three before we get into the grit of Ephesians 4-6 because we can only love others as we come to understand how much he has first loved us.